Hello everybody and welcome to lesson 8 on the BSF study of the Minor Prophets and today we're looking at Elijah, his magnificent departure from this world and Elijah's call to fill Elijah's position as the prophet to the king of Israel. You know, having prophets in the kingdom was a gift. They were a living demonstration of God's grace on the northern kingdom of Israel that was constantly going after foreign idols and foreign gods. You know, what we often forget and we need to be reminded of is that the prophets did not have to live in the northern kingdom ruled by these terrible, vainglorious kings. They could have easily moved to Judah, the southern kingdom, to live a more comfortable life under King Jehoshaphat where there was the comfortable and easy routines of true worship at the temple and among the Levites. But they stayed where they were, where the needs were great because of God's ministry of grace to the lost and dying people. You may wonder, why are you in the place that you're at when things are hard and people attack you or it's just not conducive to a person of faith to be working in? And you may wonder, what good am I in this organization? What, what can I do? But you know, your impact as a living testimony as, of a representative of God is doing work that you may not even realize it's doing. And the places of ministry is among those in need, not in places of our own comfort. We will look at the ways that these covert prophets and ministers of God who are trying to avoid attention and, and hiding from Ahab and Jezebel, were really pressing into their work and faithfully doing what they were called to do. But let's move on to a few announcements that I have before we get into the, the lesson. I just want to bring to your attention, you know, last lesson we talked about how when King Jehoshaphat went to war, when a vast army was coming against him from Eden, he had nothing but a praise band <laughs> to lead the way into that war. But the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord went before them and conquered those nations uh, that were planning on doing battle. And they overcame. And you remember, it took them three days to uh, take the plunder from that war that God had given into their hands. You know, they went with a praise band. And it reminded for many of us the importance of constantly having praise and worship in our homes. To that end, I just wanted to show you uh, what I do at home. I have a little Google Home Mini, as you can see on the screen. Some of you might already have an Alexa. They, the prices have gone down and some companies are actually even giving them away for free, the previous generation. And um, what I do in the morning is I just get up and, and say, hey, Google, play Abiding Radio. If you're not familiar with Abiding Radio, it has some really great constant stream of Christian music that edifies the soul and that's without commentary or commercials so it's 24 7 live streaming of really great Christian music and they have uh, instrumental if you want to hear voices singing they have a sacred uh, section and then also for children as well and then on a separate tab for holidays but I just go to instrumental and have all these wonderful music just permeating our, our kitchen and our living room uh, throughout the day. And then next, I uh, wanted to highlight something here. This is a visualization of data. You know, data visualization is something that's taking off these days. And some, a couple of men uh, had gathered some information that cross-references different areas of the Bible that kind of uh, reinforces what God had always been saying. So across 66 books of the Bible, we see what they are showing through this diagram or this visualization of data is the incredible coherence, the consistency, and the constancy of what God has communicated to us throughout the span of the 66 books. 
through thousands of years and through many, many different writers. And so this just emphasizes an important point that the Bible is complex. Yes, it's diverse and yes, it's intricate, but it is one unified message of God's loving, redemptive power to those who believe through Jesus Christ our Lord, who he's always said would be, would be sent as Emmanuel, as Redeemer, as the Savior of the world. And then next, I just wanted to um, bring to your attention a young man um, that is kind of a highlight for me about what grace is. Um, you know, we are created in the image of God. And this young Japanese man, Suji Nobuyuki, was born with a small eyes. Uh, it was a disease that he had all his life. He couldn't see. He was, he was blind. But his mother did not let that stand in the way of his education. And when he was a little toddler, she bought him a piano, which he played on. She really spent all of her life plowing into and administering grace on their only child. And when he got older, he started to develop a talent for piano such that he entered into the Van Cliburn Piano International Piano Competition and won first place. And that, to everybody's great amazement, thereafter, he ended up playing at the greatest stages around the world internationally. And I just want to play a little part of that for you. So this is an example of God's amazing grace. Some of the reviews you will hear, you'll see about uh, Nobuyuki on Wikipedia is that after he's playing, uh, people leave stunned by the incredible nature of what he's able to do. Uh, Van Cliburn himself says he was absolutely a miracle. His performance had the power of a healing service. It was truly divine. And then some um, reporters noted that God had taken his eyes but given him the physical endowment and mental endowment to encompass the greatest works of piano. For him to play the Chopin Concerto with such sweetness, gentleness, and sincerity, it's deeply touching. I had to keep myself from crying when I left the room. This is the ministering witness of God's grace and love in, that's all around us that we often, often miss. I'm sorry, for in the transfer of my file, some of the uh, quotes I had on this slide are missing, but let me just read it out to you. Uh, Jerry Bridges says, Grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. John Stott, the theologian, says, Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Then uh, Justin Holcomb says, uh, Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely the peace of God given to the restless, the unmerited favor of God. A.W. Tozer, a prolific preacher and writer, says, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. And then the uh, dictionary says, uh, 
unmerited divine grace is unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration and sanctification. So you might ask, you know, what is grace? Grace, again, going back to that definition, is experiencing the love and presence of God's care and forgiveness, even when you are wholly undeserving. You're actually wholly deserving the opposite. Grace is not working from zero. So grace is not starting from a point of, you know, you working without any demerits, actually you're working from a, a pile of demerits that you can't climb your your way out of. Biblical grace, the definition of biblical grace starts from a great deficit, a great deficit. But then you're getting a great credit. And God's grace is uniquely Christian because it originates from the person of Christ who earns those credits for us, who makes us worthy by his atonement. And that's a very important uh, a thought, Christian doctrinal point. Uh, Philip Yancey says, God dispenses gifts, not wages, as a result of what Jesus has done. None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would all end up in hell. And then Rob Bell goes on to says, God doesn't wait for us to get ourselves polished, shine, proper, and without blemish. God comes to us and meets us to bless us while we are still in the middle of the mess we've created. It's God's grace. Um, one of the really interesting books I've read about this is Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? Uh, something that we often kind of used a lot. The word grace is used often in our conversation, but it deserves deep introspection and he's done that work and one of the things he says about is you know i felt rejected growing up in church because i found so little grace there but i returned because i found grace nowhere else and uh, he realized uh, grace is uniquely very much a christian concept that is very difficult to find anywhere else along the same ways in which the bible depicts it and that's what we're going to be looking at today in 2 Kings chapter 2 and 3. The big idea is God's unrelenting grace. And it causes the audience to learn that God persistently extends grace to his followers as well as rebels. And the attribute of God we focus on is this incomprehensible, merciful advocate that he is for the lost. God's grace does not follow human math, is what I've heard before. You know, it's not 2 plus 2 equals 4. God's grace is 2 plus 2 equals 100. It's, it's just beyond what we uh, understand to be deserved because Jesus enters the equation. Jesus enters the equation and makes those who believe in him deserving of every good thing that is rightfully his and his alone. So, the first division that we look at is grace in hard times. In chapter 2, we're going to see in the lives of Elijah and Elisha, verses 1 to 18, times of God's grace in times of uncomfortable change. 19 to 22, God's grace in times of debilitating circumstances. And then from 23 to 25, God's grace in times of attacks and injury from others. And the principle we want to look at and to rest our thoughts on is believers live in and depend upon a steady stream of God's grace all the time, all the time. You know, many of us think that the Old Testament doesn't depict God as a loving or gracious person in the Old Testament, a loving God, but we're finding grace was there all along. You know, even in 
the places we don't even expect it, such as Ahab's life. King Ahab disobeyed God concerning the conquest of Ben-Hadad and Naboth's, he was, you know, very much the reason for Naboth's murder. And Ahab had a brief moment when he seemed to be on the path to reform at one point, chapter 20, verse 28, after hearing from Elijah's works of God's judgment, words of God's judgment. The next verse strikes us as peculiar. You know, Ahab tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went about meekly. And then we see something very <laughs> peculiar here. It says, then God responds with, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Have you noticed how Ahab had humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. After all the evil deeds that Ahab had done, that was unparalleled according to verse 25, than any of the other kings, God decides to show this incredible show of grace, resulting in another delay of judgment against Ahab. He shares his heart and decision of this to Elijah, who <laughs> is a fugitive on the run, right? He's always running away from the the royal family because he is a, he they, they have a target on him. Can you imagine Elijah's position in hearing that God is complimenting Ahab, his persecutor, and and he's receiving such undeserved grace? You know, I wonder if Elijah did not slap his forehead and thought, "Are you kidding me? This vile and treacherous man is going about." doing all these evil deeds, and he's now getting a reprieve just because he's showing some humility, showing some little humility. Lord, you must know that this is all shallow and short-lived. You know, I would venture to guess Elijah must have felt a bit like Jonah when he was exasperated with the Ninevites just then. Let them have their day in judgment, you know. Uh, who, who cares about these guys? They deserve what they get. But God was so gracious to Ahab, not sending him an enemy, but he sent him a friend in the form of Elijah to admonish and warn him of God's judgment to repent. You know, we're still wrestling with many times God delays and postpone his judgment. And we wonder why judgment, judgment does not fall on the wicked right away. But realize, and we all have to realize that as we say this, if, we, if God did execute judgment right away, we would all be in trouble. You know, firstly, I wrestle with my feelings about Ahab. He's a sulky, gluttonous, self-centered, pouting individual of the worst kind. And we have our disdain of Ahab and Jezebel. You know, it's built up and it reaches a crescendo over so many chapters dedicated to describing these two. So enough of what they do as a wicked duo, you know, persecuting, killing the prophets, defying God's specific commands about war and how they are to, you know, manage the country, the murder of the innocent, involving others into seriously corrupt evil acts, and creating a sense of moral indignation in the, in the readers, you know. It's an exasperation to the point where we're eager to see them wiped off and done away with. But God doesn't act the way we do, <laughs> thankfully. That's an important point on its own. So the, the question is why? Why doesn't God uh, just be swift about his judgments uh, before this evil just gets out of hand? Well, uh, it was part of an inter interesting discussion I had with some folks the other day. And we discussed how God sometimes allows evil to run its course and reach its apex. Because when we're enjoying life and having a good time, uh, we fail to really appreciate how truly horrible and truly ugly and detestable sin really is 
until we see it in its full form. You know, you really don't realize how bad cancer is until it really you, you witness the degradation and the decay that it does to a loved one. It's just the way with sin. We really don't realize how bad sin can be because we have an abstraction of it and we really don't understand it in its full form. You know, Dorothy, <laughs> Wizard of Oz, never, never realizes the beauty of home until she leaves home. We don't know what day, we wouldn't know what day is until there was night. You know, God is patient teacher. In the same way, he allows sometimes darkness to wrench our hearts and turn our stomachs so that we fully understand why he hates sin so much. We may at times see sin as a minor incursion and play it down, but if we do, we don't. We are far from seeing it from God's perspective. You know, Asian parents sometimes want to short circuit their children's pain and suffering uh, by taking it upon themselves to solve problems for them. But when they do this, uh, they really are short circuiting the children's opportunity to learn from their mistakes. You know, I think of the prodigal's father. God lets sin's consequences spiral out of control for the individual by the time he ends up in the pig pen eating the you know leftovers the pigs are eating he fully understands you know where he is and he sobers up he there's uh, he comes to his senses and coming to senses really takes sometimes uh, coming face to face with the horrible nature of sin you know um, it's a difficult thing to see loved ones get to that position but even in management, when we're talking about leaders, how they manage organizations, we say there really are only two ways in which people do an about face, either by confessing to what's wrong with the company or going through crisis until they recognize <laughs> that they are wrong. And so most people, you know, it, it's very difficult for people to have a heart of confession. They have to experience the crisis and the depth of the crisis in order to acknowledge the truth. And confession is just a, merely a, a practice of acknowledging the truth as it is from God's truth. Uh, and then repentance is doing something about it according to God's remedy. You know, we're going through a, a bit of this all around the world. Uh, and there's war in Ukraine and many other places. Uh, there's um, insurmountable uh, garbage being dumped into the world and pollution. And uh, we know that it's doing environmental and also personal damage on the individual level, and it breaks our heart. But we are troublemakers at heart. That is what is meant by we are all sinners. We are troublemakers, and there is no getting out of it. The only rescue is the great salvation that God provides through His Son. And hopefully, through all of this, we can understand that repentance through Jesus is the only way we can be saved. Going to the chapter in 2 now, second, second cha uh, Kings chapter 2, we see that Elisha is now being prepared to replace Elijah. And all the prophets know uh, as they're going through these towns and making their way, as Elijah in some ways is saying goodbye, that Elijah is going away, that he is going to be taken up by the Spirit of the Lord. And uh, Elijah now is asking right beforehand uh, when Elijah asked, what should I do for you? He said, I, I need a double portion of your spirit. Now, what does that mean? A double portion as if this was like secondhand helpings at the dinner table. Uh, it's not that. Uh, he wants to receive a blessing to the, do the work. He's not shying away from the work. But like many of us, we, stall, uh, we start our ministry very small. We, we enter into it with uh, the obedience that we have. 
But sometimes we just don't feel qualified to do the work. We don't have the wherewithal or the blessing to do the work of ministry we feel we are called to do. And that might be in BSF. We desire an anointing, a special spirit-filled anointing. And we desire a double portion of God's spirit because we often feel half the person we have seen others be, whether in church leadership, as missionaries in difficult countries, or even as outspoken teachers in, in the culture uh, in modern times. We desire a double portion of God's spirit. And this is a really great lesson to, you know, just park here for a little bit and think about how we are pressing into the faith and asking for the Lord's help. Have you called out for God to give you a special anointing and blessing on your work and the ministry that you undertake, whether at church or at BSF or at any other capacity, whether at the workplace as well? Blessing on your life to carry out what he has placed on your heart to do every good work to do in his name as the first step of ministry that you're embarked on, you know, calling on the God's anointing in your life. And then two, what does it feel like to go into ministry work alone and without a sense that God is present to help you in it? What does that feel like? Well, this is a reminder. We need the Lord to go before us. We don't do these things on our own. And to begin the day in acknowledgement of it, just even in prayer to say, God, I'm doing everything because you are going ahead of me to do it. I'm entirely in your hands. And that's a great way to start the day, committing ourselves to his care and his direction. And three, uh, another application question is, why is it dangerous in ministry to go into thinking we are doing it all alone and by our own resources? Why is it dangerous? Because if you do think you're doing it entirely by yourself, you will burn out and you will get it quickly into a pity party about how you know you, you feel overwhelmed by everything and you're not equipped to do it. It is not you doing the work. You do as much as you leave yourself up to the Lord to work through you. That is God's promise. He's doing it before you. He's paving the way before us. So Elijah's departure is quite uh, sensational. It's, uh, it's amazing. Elijah is speaking with Elisha in the final moments as they're on the other side of the Jordan. And please take note of that significance because it's at the Jordan that Elijah comes back, the spirit of Elijah comes back in John the Baptist, the very place where he will continue to do this amazing ministry of calling people to repentance. But here in this chapter, there's a chariot of fire pulled by horses of fire that separate the two. And then it says, Elijah goes up in a whirlwind. Uh, I just can't imagine all that's going on. I, I can't even envision what chariots of fire look like, a chariot of fire. What happened to his body? Uh, well, just like you and I would be even confused by the description here, so were the prophets who were watching on from the other side of the river, Jordan. And thinking that his body was tossed to some other random place, they asked Elisha if they should go and find his body. And so the prophets of God, um, with his permission, go off to look, but he knows they're not going to find his body. That is not where his body was strewn. Uh, God took him up to reserve him for a special calling once again in the future as a harbinger of the Lord and Savior Jesus. So God equips his people for the work they're called to do. He goes before them and provides them for the work that they ought to do. Always remember that when someone calls you or you feel like the Lord is calling you into a new work of ministry because that will help you understand your response to it.
because <laughs> sometimes the overwhelming sense of our unpreparedness can uh, lend, kind of put ourselves in a position of slamming the door before we know what we're doing. So in what ways did God confirm Elisha as his prophet? Well, God confirmed to the people around him that he was God's representative and prophet by giving him the gifts to perform signs and miracles. He cleansed the spring water of Jericho so that it gave fresh water for them to drink. That's a blessing. But then he also called down judgment on young people who jeered at him at Bethel. You know, Bethel was the place that he and Elijah just not so long ago walked through. And they were revered there. The prophets came out. Uh, and um, it's very clear that people knew what the prophets looked like. You know, these were very ascetic looking people, I imagine. Not a lot of fancy accoutrements uh, on their back. But, you know, just um, there was a way in which people recognized the prophets. And uh, when Elijah is here, they dishonored him. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. You know, God confirms to the people that Elijah, Elisha was God's representative and prophet now by giving him these signs and miracles. But Bethel, you know, is an interesting place for judgment to happen because Bethel means the house of God. It is there that Abraham built an altar to the Lord there and worshipped in hopes of his promises, God's covenant to be fulfilled. And then Jacob received the dream of the heavens unfurling to the earth with angels ascending and descending to God from that location. It is at Bethel that the Ark of the Covenant was kept and people worshipped until, you know, the, the permanent building was built, the temple. Now, here, just before Elijah is to leave Elisha, the authority of his position is conferred on this new prophet. But the, and Bethel came out to see this, right? And it was in a way as to do a procession through the remaining towns that had to bear witness of this, all sensing that God is taking up Elijah. So when young rapscallions come out to deride and ridicule God's anointed prophet in a large group like this, it couldn't have happened, you know, unknown, beknownst to, you know, the adults around them. In the Hebrew, the word for these young people is actually young adults. They were, you know, not little children. They were young adults who were coming out and seeing Elijah come back on his own. Elijah, Elijah apparently didn't look the part of a wizened, strong prophet like Elijah, perhaps for one thing, he was bald. And as I read this, I was reminded and convicted of an important lesson from this that we never judge a minister of God by his or her looks or some otherworldly criteria that has no place in God's will. We live in a world of appearances, dressing up and making up and having the right bling, having the right presentation. We may also be used to listening to spiritual leaders uh, within our own silos, within our own groups and tribes. Those people who share our skin color, our age group, our cultural background, or our standards of life. And God's servants might look, you know, less than to us in some ways to not be able to keep up, you know, with appearances or not have the best suit on or not have the right hairstyle. But, but you know, that's our personal preference. And they're very superficial judgments to be placing upon God's people who have been appointed to deliver God's message. We might be putting up, we, it, that might be putting us up against the powerful working of God 
and keeping us from listening and paying attention when we most need to. In fact, we know that Jesus himself was described in Isaiah as a man rejected by men. It says in Isaiah 53 too, He had no stately form or majesty to attract us, no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You know, sometimes when a person is too attractive or look and appear the right way, we look at the person and not the message. And, you know, it's interesting here that Jesus ensured that his bodily flesh in no way dazzled or drew people to him by his looks so that it obscured his message. Jesus was not aiming to be a celebrity like the celebrities of our time. He was not supposed uh, going around trying to draw people by how fancy he was or how attractive he was uh, like we do. We seek to impress people and increase our value by our attractiveness. That is not what Jesus sought to do. He came to bear the word of God because he was the word of God. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we should remember that his objective was not the kind of things that we aim to do in the world. He wanted to represent God's heart because he was the perfect manifestation of God's heart directly to us. So what do the prophets do? Well, the prophets speak the Word of God, and that is a calling for the, for the church the prophets and believers of God speak from the Word of God. Jesus did that. He has preserved the Word for us so that we can have full confidence of what God, what God has said. Jesus himself authenticated the Word. You know, many people uh, throw aspersions at the reliability of God's Word. But we know that Jesus authenticated it. He taught from it himself. And while he was very much... Uh, attacking error on every side, including those of the religious rulers, he never at any single point attacked the scriptures or corrected the scriptures for error because the word of God was faithful and true as God, through the Holy Spirit, maintained it through the ages. So we can have full confidence in it because Jesus has confidence in the scriptures. And he quoted from it extensively. So at any time you're confronted by people and asked, how can you believe in the word of God to be true? All you need to go back to is the life of Jesus and the declaration of who Jesus is as the son of God, as God himself. If God has approved it, then there's no question about it. If, you, if Jesus did not come, then yes, indeed, we would have many questions. But because people deny Jesus, that is why they have their qualms. But when they receive Jesus, Truth becomes a person, not a statement, and we realize we believe the scripture because of the person of Christ himself. So let's go on to the second division, grace in times of great distress, and that's in chapter 3. 1 through 9, grace is always undeserved. 10 through 15, we're looking at grace as it's fulfilled through his promises despite our flaws. And then 16 to 27, grace in victory over the enemy. And the principle we're going to be looking at is we will find that always the greatest expression of God's grace is Jesus, if he is the Lord over our lives. So let's look at how grace is offered in times of great distress. So another international political 
uh, hand-wringing event occurs in chapter 3. After King Ahab passes away, his son comes to power, and then uh, something happens with a uh, kind of a tribute that was supposed to be paid to the northern kingdom from Moab. Uh, so the Moabites were a heathen, idolatrous people whom God had subjugated under King David's reign because they were always a threat to the national sovereignty of Israel and their control over the land. You might also remember the Moabites uh, hindered the Israelites' entry into the promised land uh, by sending a prophet by the name of Balaam to hinder their entry and um, and to curse their entry and so god had judged them and said an ammonite or a moabite shall not shall not enter the assembly of the lord even to the 10th generation none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of egypt and because they hired against you balaam the son of beor of pethor of mesopotamia to curse you Nonetheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. And so that's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 to 5. But, you know, we have to remember that Ruth was a Moabite. And the only way in which Ruth was entered into the promise was not because God forgot that he had judged Moabites, but Ruth if you read what she says, when her Israelite mother-in-law tried to convince her to stay with her people in Moab, Ruth would have none of it. She says in Ruth 1.16, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For whatever you, you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God my God. And this is, in a way, a, a point of repentance. It wasn't that Moab, see, Moab represents a rebellion against God. And so anyone who was of a Moabite lineage could be rescued by coming into the fold by God's covenantal promises to Israel. And we know that Ruth not only came into the fold, but ended up becoming the mother who gave birth eventually to King David and to our Lord Jesus himself. But these Moabites in this chapter is no longer sending a tribute of a hundred thousand rams and a hundred the wool of a hundred thousand rams, excuse me, and a hundred thousand lambs to the northern kingdom. And so this becomes the seedbed for the war that they uh, muster up to attack Moab by. So, uh, but when they go into war, as as is often kind of happens when you have poor management, I guess, is that they go without sufficient water to last them this uh, entire excursion. And so they go about uh, a roundabout way to finding the forces of Moab and run out of water for the forces, their animals, and their men. And perhaps because Moabites probably were a nomadic uh, culture, it was hard to track them down. And so they were going about for seven days looking for them and they ran out of water. But when they ran out, it's Jehoshaphat who encourages them to seek the advice of Elisha. And Elijah has them dig up ditches because the following day there would be great amounts of water. So uh, this is another important point to look at. Jehoshaphat constantly gets pulled into war and, and into, into undesirable situations, all because he had intermarried. He had his son, his firstborn son, married to the daughter of Ahab. And perhaps we looked at that before. Perhaps it was done because he sought to reunify, reunify the nation as one. Perhaps he had good motives, but this 
being unequally yoked uh, forced him into a shared destiny with the people that didn't share his uh, values or love for God and God's people. You know, and this is also a reminder for us, again, of how important it is to be equally yoked in terms of uh, the objectives and values of one's life. Uh, but God was faithful still. He was gracious to the undeserved, as we saw in this slide. Uh, so with the water, they were able to engage, finally, their enemy. And when they did uh, press against the Moabites, what happened was um, at the, they not only uh, fought the military, but they devastated the land. They, it says in uh, verse 5 that they destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. And they stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. I mean, that's just totally going to devastate their industry and their livelihood. And um, it was only at Kerharaseth that was left with its stones in place. And the men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well, though. And the Moabite king saw that he was done for and that he was completely trapped with no escape. But when he was at the end of his rope, when all else had failed, he turns not to God to save him, but resorts to a cruel offer of sacrifice of his firstborn son on the city walls to the full view of everyone to sacrifice his son to the false god Chemos. Uh, this is done to appease their god, of course. But it's very emblematic that when we get into the rut and the strain of our lives, where we end up having to sacrifice to the very things that we've lived our lives for, the very things that we thought we cherished. Again, we find the greatest expression of grace when we turn to God, our Savior, turns to life, not death. False worship of idols and things of this world will lead us astray. And we know by the way of our lives uh, crumbling all around us as it did in this situation, we know when things crumble we must turn to God. We can reject grace for only so long. There are expressions of grace that are shown on our lives that we must not deny as God points us toward himself, where we must relinquish the lies and distortions that will destroy us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to relinquish the tradition of lies, the tradition and heritage of faithlessness and idolatry of all kinds of worldliness in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is free, and only because the giver himself had borne the cost. We praise your name and thank you for your life given for us. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.